Good morning. Good to see everybody. It's good to be back this week. I was in Oklahoma last Sunday um, preaching at Christ Community Church in Ardmore. And I tell you, as, as much as I love to share the gospel with uh, new people in, in a new place, um, nothing beats being back home. And uh, I'm glad to be here. It's a great church up there, but man, I sure do love y'all. Good to be back here with you. If uh, you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be this morning and got me looking at something that I was uh, reading, reading recently when the Lord highlighted some things in here and I realized it would be a good way of kind of wrapping up this series on shame that we have been in for the last several weeks and uh, transition into something else. We're looking at some of the things that Jesus said the last night that he was with his disciples before his execution. And there are a couple statements that he made that we're going to look at today. And then we're going to look at some other ones later on in this text next week. But Luke chapter 22, we're going to be starting in verse 14. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord today. It says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined." But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for uh, the word that you give us this morning. Lord, for this message that you have laid uh, on my heart. And God, I pray that there would be something that is said in here, God, that would... Lord, just wake something up inside of somebody that has just seemed to be dead for so long. God, I pray that something would click. It would be like someone in here, God, is just uh, hearing the sound of a song that they have been longing to hear. God, I pray that we would see you for who you really are and be changed by that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The things that Jesus said to his disciples as as they were sitting around the table taking part in the Last Supper were some of the most profound words that Jesus had ever spoken. He is explaining to them what all is going to be taking place in the coming hours. Not necessarily the details of how everything is going to go down, but he is telling them uh, what it all will mean. And it is important for us to understand what it is that he is saying here because every bit of it applies to us as followers of Christ today. First thing he says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
This was, of course, the annual Passover meal that they were taking part in together that commemorated the most important event in Jewish history, the last night that the Israelites lived as slaves in Egypt. I'm sure that most of you know the story. Uh, Israelites had been enslaved uh, in Egypt for over 400 years, and God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he pleads with Pharaoh to let them go to return back to their homeland, and Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends 10 different plagues on the land to show Pharaoh who it is that he is saying no to. That, that who it is that he is messing with. But it seems like every plague that God sent, Pharaoh's heart would just be hardened more and more. And then finally God sent the last one, which was going to finally do it and break Pharaoh. He instructed Moses that on this particular night, every household was to take a lamb. And the lamb had to be unblemished, to have no defects on it whatsoever. And he gave specific instructions on how it was to be killed, how it was to be prepared, how it was to be cooked, and how it was to be eaten. But he said the most important thing about this lamb is that the head of each household is to take the blood of it, collect it in a bowl, and then paint that blood on their doorpost, on the top uh, lintel and then on the two side posts, which you look is, of course, in the shape of a cross. And he said during the night, death was going to pass over the land and claim the life of the firstborn of every household. But he says, when the Lord passes over a house that has the blood on the doorpost, he will prevent the destroyer from entering into that house. And so as night fell, I shudder to, to think of the sounds that were heard all over the land as mothers and family members were wailing over the loss of the firstborn of every household, except in those houses that had the blood of the Lamb. It even affected Pharaoh's household as well, and this was the final plague that broke him, and he relented and saying, fine, just leave me alone, go. And so they went back to the promised land. Of course, we know now that this all was a foreshadow of what was to come in Jesus. He was the unblemished lamb that was slaughtered for us. And all who plead his blood, not over the doorposts of their house, but over their very lives, are spared the death that sin brings. And just like that was the last night that the Israelites would live as slaves in Egypt, this night that Jesus was spending with his disciples around the table was the last night that mankind would have to live as slaves to sin. In the coming hours, Jesus would break sin's curse by taking it all upon himself and dying on the cross. Now, obviously, no one at that time really knew what the Passover meant other than it was just a miraculous display of God's mercy and salvation. Jesus was the only one who knew what it was really about, and he is explaining some of this to his disciples. In verse 16, he says, For I say to you, I shall never eat it, Eat never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, many people have assumed that Jesus is talking about his second coming here. And yes, that, that is what he's talking about. That is what he means when he's talking about eating this meal with them again. But it's not what he's referring to when he says, until it is fulfilled. 
Because think about this. What is the it that he is referring to? It's the Passover meal that they are sharing there together. He won't eat it, the Passover meal, until the Passover is fulfilled. Well, if the Passover was a picture and a representation of Jesus being our sacrifice, then when was that fulfilled? When he died on the cross. The next time they eat the Passover meal together, you and I are going to be able to take part in that too. When Jesus returns and we all sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb and it will be the Passover meal. But what's going to be different about this is that instead of commemorating that night in Egypt, we're going to be celebrating what happened at the cross. Because Jesus fulfilled the whole thing. And then look at the next thing that he says, starting in verse 17. He says, take this and share it among yourselves. Talking about the cup. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what does he mean when he says until the kingdom of God comes? Well, the reality is the kingdom of God was already there. It was right there at that table with them because Jesus was there. Jesus brought the kingdom of God with him when he stepped down on the earth. He announces this in his first words that Mark records. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He was saying what all of history had been about was here. What all of history had been waiting on had come. It arrived in Jesus. And then his whole ministry was him displaying that kingdom in operation. And in those words, he also told us what it would take for anyone else to be included and be a part of that kingdom as well. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Those two things would be required to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, repentance and faith. The kingdom of God isn't just heaven. And I think that's what a lot of people think the scripture is referring to whenever it talks about the kingdom of God. It's talking about heaven at some future point in time down the road. But you don't have to die in order to enter the kingdom of God. What you do have to do is repent and believe. And when you do that, you have access to everything that Jesus had at his disposal when he was here on earth. I don't think many of us realize that. That God's kingdom is available to us right here, right now, on this earth All you have to do to enter and be a part of it is repent and believe the gospel. And when you do, you have access to everything that Jesus had at his disposal when he was here. Man, I just, yeah, it is something to shout about. I tell you, and if if enough people really believe that, we would see more of the kingdom in operation, and we're called to do the same thing that Jesus did those three years announce the arrival of the kingdom and then show that it exists, display it in the way that we live. And then in your notes there, under repentance, repentance isn't just a change in behavior, but a change in thinking as well. That's why Paul said in Romans 12 2, 
to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't really do much good to change your behavior if your mind still thinks and operates in error. The change in behavior isn't going to be a very lasting change at all because um, the way that we think always affects what we do and how we live. And then under repentance, the next point, repentance is required when what we say, think, and do doesn't line up with what God says, thinks, and does. And then the other requirement is faith. Faith in what? Next point, believing that Jesus fulfilled all the requirements on your behalf. See, God, being a holy God, had a very high standard to whoever could come into his presence and be accepted by him. It's not goodness that God required. It's not about being a good person. It is about being absolutely perfect, holy. Jesus met all of God's standards, all of God's requirements, all of God's conditions for what it would take to be accepted by him. The good news of the gospel is that all who believe that are then credited as having met those requirements as well. But when Jesus said that, he hadn't yet accomplished it all. That repentance and belief that there wouldn't be an object there to exercise or place those things on until he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so no one could really gain access to or be a part of God's kingdom until those two things happen. So when he said at the Last Supper, until the kingdom of God comes, he was saying essentially until God's kingdom is made available to all. It is here now in me, but it will come to all of you once I die and raise again from the dead. And then verse 19 and 20. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I want to spend the rest of the time this morning talking about this new covenant. Because the new covenant is the ultimate remedy for shame, completely eliminates it the way that God instituted this and set it up. And it's important for us to understand because so many people are still living according to old covenant principles. We all know that the old covenant carried with it a whole lot of shame. There's a little boy, foolishly, without his parents knowing, climbed up on the roof of his house to play. When he lost his footing, and as he was sliding down those slick shingles, he cried out to God, God, if you will save me, I promise I'll become a missionary. And just before he went over the edge, this nail was sticking out and caught his pants leg and stopped him from going over the edge. And the boy looked up to heaven and said, never mind, God, this nail saved me. (laughs) Almost every civilization at every point in history has had the notion of a covenant, a solemn agreement that asserts, if you promise to do this, then I promise to do 
this. The most common type has been the covenants between uh, larger, more powerful nations that will make an agreement with a smaller, weaker nation. The smaller ones knew that they were vulnerable and needed defending. The larger nations didn't want the smaller ones uh, surrounding them to be able to align themselves with their enemy. And so they would promise to protect the smaller country for the pledge of the allegiance of the smaller country to them that they would not align themselves with anyone else. It was an exchange, protection from the larger one in exchange for allegiance from the smaller one. Anthropologists have learned that nearly all people at any point in history have made various covenants with the gods that they worship. And they say that it's because humans have this deep sense that there is something more powerful out there than we are. And when you're in a position of weakness or in a position of desperation, you instinctively want to strike some sort of bargain with that stronger power. To a little boy falling off of a roof, it might be the promise of missionary service. To the prophets of Baal, it might be cutting their flesh in order to prove their allegiance. And if you notice, there are a lot of Christians today who have adopted a religious system that asserts this same theme. God, I pledge to align myself with you. I pledge to do something impressive for you if you will, in turn, promise to protect or bless me in some sort of way. The vast majority of the Old Testament in the Bible is about a covenant that God made with Moses. He essentially said, you have seen that there is no power greater than me, and I do not want you to align yourselves with any of these pagan gods. And so if you align yourself with me and pledge to obey me at all times, then I promise to protect and bless you. And the people that Moses represented accepted the covenant with gratitude and became the recipients of the benefits of it. And there are five main points of this covenant that I want to point out. And we're going to be talking about this and how it correlates with the new one too. But look at this. It's in your notes next. Number one, the first point is that there are obviously representatives of each side. And in this particular covenant, there was a divine side represented by God and a human side represented by Moses who was then the representative of the people. The second part of the covenant is the binding oaths. The people's pledge to God and God's pledge to the people. Number four was, I mean, number three was promises of blessings and benefits. And then the fourth part, a very central part of it, was a blood sacrifice. Of course, in this covenant, it was the blood of bulls and goats sacrificed on the altar. And then the fifth part of it was a shared meal. In Exodus 24, when the people affirmed this covenant with God, verse 11 says that Moses and Aaron went up with the 70 elders of Israel, and they ate and drank, affirming the covenant that they had made with God. Now, the centerpiece of this covenant was the law. Ten simple commands for the people to obey in order to be able to uphold their end of the bargain. But what they discovered right off the bat was their complete inability at keeping it. 
But what's remarkable, remarkable about this covenant was that God, knowing that they couldn't keep it, provided a way for them to make amends every time they failed at, with, at um, upholding their end of the deal. God allowed them to offer animal sacrifices that would temporarily shift God's wrath away from the people and onto the animal. Every time the people failed to live up to their end of the covenant, what they deserved was to lose all the blessings that were promised them if they kept their end of the deal. But God, in order to display his grace and mercy, allowed the debt of covenant breakers to be partially paid with these animal sacrifices. The story of the Old Testament is a story of the recurring failure of God's people to uphold their end and be faithful to their part in the agreement. And for century upon century, generation after generation, sacrifice after sacrifice, God's wrath was poured out on innocent animals instead of guilty people. And even though there was a great deal of relief in that, there was still the shame Because every time someone would have to bring an animal and carry that animal, walking up the steps of the temple, bringing it to the altar, it was this big, giant, symbolic reminder that they had failed. You failed. You're rebellious. You're disobedient. You're unfaithful. It was this constant reminder that there was some flaw in them that kept them from being able to, To uphold their end of the agreement. But God promised them that there would one day be a better way. A way that would even remove and eliminate all the shame. Prevent it from even being an issue anymore. A new covenant. A better covenant. A different covenant. One that God said would not be like the old one. The people didn't really know what it meant, but they did know that it included a Messiah, a Savior. They looked forward to it. They sang songs about it. They encouraged one another in the hope that was to come. What a day it would be when this new covenant would be ratified with God. Folks, the good news is that you and I are now today living in that day. We are living in the glorious day of the new covenant. The one that Jesus said would be represented and sealed by his shed blood, which was represented in the wine of the Passover meal. But when you look around and you see how many Christians are living today, and you listen to how many Bible lessons are being taught today, and how a lot of scripture is being interpreted, it makes you wonder what in the world is so new about the new covenant. I mean, what's really different about it, other than the fact that we no longer have to sacrifice animals? I mean, is that really the only thing that changed? My gosh, surely it's got to be something greater than something that makes the people for the ethical treatment of animals happy. There's got to be more to it than that. And even though most of us know that we're living under the new covenant, many of us are still living as if we are under the old. A lot of us are still trying to uphold our end of the bargain. 
We know that we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore, but we still tend to think that there are some sort of amends that we have to make, something that we've got to do to make up for and pay for all the mistakes that we have made. We still tend to have this, if I do this, God will do this mentality. If I wake up and have my quiet times every morning, God will bless me with a good rest of the day. If I pay my tithes regularly, God will protect my finances and may even bless me with more money. If I go to church on a regular basis, God will like me more. On and on and on, we keep making these deals with God and then view our relationship with Him as hinging on some sort of agreement that we think that we have between one another. I've talked to many people who live their lives as if they are paying a debt that they think that they owe to God with some pledge or promise that they made, trying so hard to keep it. I've talked to several military veterans who, when they were over in the war, promised God that they would serve them in ministry if he would allow them to come home safely from the war. And when those ministry doors didn't open the way they expected, they live with this guilt and shame that they are failing to live up to their end of the bargain. I mean, how many of us have promised God that we'll never drink another drink, we'll never take another drug, we'll never click on another link, only to fail at that promise time after time after time and then walk around covered in so much guilt and shame with the, the knowledge that you are an utter failure at keeping your promise. I've asked people at times what they think is new about the new covenant. And most of the answers I get are generally along the lines of things like, well, the difference is that we don't have to to offer animal sacrifices anymore. Or the difference is that God's grace, God's grace is now available to us when we do fail. God's grace was available under the old covenant. That's what the whole sacrificial system was. Or let's say the difference is that we now have the Holy Spirit to help us hold up our end of the deal. The Holy Spirit's there now to help us to be able to to, to be faithful to our end of the covenant, which it wasn't in the Old Testament. The truth is, none of that makes it anything new at all. That would just be kind of a modified version of the Old Covenant. Old Covenant 2.0. We tend to think that since God was faithful to uphold his end of the promise by giving us Jesus and saving us from hell, that we've got to somehow reciprocate that and do something to uphold our end. So when we fail and we sin, we're again covered up with so much shame at being a failure. And that's when we go, well, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. It's the shame of being a failure. You know, one thing that I've come to realize since the Lord began to lead me on this rediscovery of the gospel is that learning something new really isn't that difficult at all. What's difficult, what's really hard, is unlearning the old. That's what's hard. But in order to embrace the new, you've got to unlearn the old. 
Even though we know that we're under the new covenant, our default nature tends to revert back to the old way of doing things. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. He said, if you do that, the old skins are going to burst and the wine's going to spill out and make a mess all over the ground. If you try to live under the new covenant, but still living according to old covenant principles, I promise you it'll make just as much of a mess of your life too. Here's what we've got to understand about this new covenant. Without grasping this, you will continue to live in bondage to the old covenant system, haunted by the taunts of shame that you are a failure. First off, the new covenant still has those same five parts. There's still two representatives of each side, a divine side and a human side. But what's changed about that is what makes it all new. And there's something there that I didn't really understand until just a couple years ago. And when the Lord revealed this to me, I had to kind of wrestle with it for a little while at first. It was hard to accept. And I even went and checked it out with some older and wiser men who are more seasoned in ministry than I am. I said, hey, this, this, is this right? And they confirmed it and said, that's right. I said, well, why in the world isn't anybody talking about this more? Man, this changes everything. And I'm like, good point. Maybe we should be talking about it more. Yeah, let's talk about it more, man. This is, this is going to set some people free. And then a couple of years ago when man, it finally did sink in, I jumped up here and shared it with you just as quick as I could. And I've been learning so much about it since then. Like I said, though, I had a hard time embracing it. But when I finally did, it absolutely broke me. It caused me to fall in love with Jesus in ways that I never have before. And when I point this out, I know that some of you are going to have to wrestle with it for a little bit, too, because it goes completely against human wisdom completely against religious doctrine that many of us have been taught growing up in church for so long. But when you do embrace it, I promise you, it will set you freer than you ever intended to get. And I'm going to drop this truth on you, and then I'm going to leave you hanging with it until next week. We're going to come back and, and, and look at it in more depth, but here it is. The new covenant is not between us and God. You are not the primary representative on the human side. Jesus is. The covenant was made between God the Father and Jesus the Son. In being both 100% man and 100% human, Jesus represents both sides of the covenant that incredible truth has so many ramifications for us for one it prevents us from being able to fail at upholding our end of things because you're not held to holding up anything because it was made with Jesus You just, by God's grace, got to be a recipient 
of everything that he gets from the Father for being faithful to upholding it. Next week, I'm going to show you in Scripture where it shows us all this. But right now, I want to leave you with this. Because some of you may be one of the ones that I was talking about earlier. You've been living under this burden thinking that there's some deal that you've got to be faithful to upholding your end of. Some promise that you made that you've got to be sure that you're faithful to or God's going to be disappointed or withhold something back from you. I'm telling you right now, you need to be free from that. And God wants you to be free from that. Because listen, just because you made a deal with God doesn't mean that he accepted it. And whatever he did that somehow you took as a sign that he did accept your deal, he was going to do that anyway. You didn't make him do something because of some impressive promise that you made to him. Make him change his mind. Oh, you're going to do that? Well, here you go. I'm sorry. You're not that impressive. (laughs) And God knows you're just going to fail at it anyway. See, what the problem with that is when we make a deal with God, And then we think that we have been just trying as hard as we can to uphold our end. And we think we've done a good job of of keeping our promise, but we don't see God coming through on his. Well, that causes us to put God into our debt. And we have this attitude, God, you owe me. I was faithful to my end. When are you going to be faithful to yours? God owes no man a thing. God doesn't make deals like that just because you made it doesn't mean that he did you need to hear this if you've been living under that it's the last point in your notes and I'm going to leave you with this your relationship with God is never based on a promise that you make to him it will always be based on the promise that he made to you. Your relationship with him is based on the promise that he made to you that was fulfilled in Jesus. And there is no cheesy deal that you can make with him that's going to trump the promise that you have in Jesus. Some of you need to chew on that for a little bit. I'm going to let you do that for a week before we come back and look at this closer. I'm telling you, this is some of the best stuff you may ever hear. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and your ways are so far beyond us. God, a lot of times it just doesn't make sense to our natural, finite minds. God, we need supernatural help to be able to grasp just the immensity of your grace your goodness, and your love. And Lord, I pray for those in here right now who may have been living in that kind of a a mindset under the burden of trying to uphold some deal they think that you are holding them to. God, I pray that you would set them free from that with the truth of the promise that you have made to them. And God, anything good in their life is simply because of your grace, your goodness. It's not because of anything that they did to earn that in some way. 
And God, for those that are just so bound up thinking, God got bitterness towards you and thinking that you owe them for something. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal truth to them. That you owe no man a thing. That anything that we have is simply a gift of your unmerited grace. Lord, if we keep trying to make deals with you, I believe it's because we don't understand the deal that you have graciously allowed us to be a part of. Because once we understand that, God, there is no deal that could be any better. So, Father, I pray that during this week you would just begin working these things into our hearts, guiding us through this in our minds. Lord, seeing your word where it confirms these things and God, again, awakens something that seemed dead inside of us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and in the remainder of this time, you would just allow freedom. Freedom, God, to just overwhelm this place. Lord, let loose those who are bound up for so long, still living under the old covenant ways of performance and achievement and good behavior in order to gain anything from you. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Have your way. And let the will of the Father be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.